offer my respects to my spiritual master, His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, and to all the previous teachers of bhakti who have passed this uh, process down to us here in Long Beach, and to all of you who are on the divine path going back to the spiritual world. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. One of the recommended ways to make uh, spiritual advancement, because there are a lot of options in life, it seems, a lot of decisions to make. Sometimes there's not that many options, but we think of doing many things and being successful in careers and so forth. And we do have decisions to make, and it oftentimes feels a little bit pressing and also depressing because there's a way in which we can't always achieve what we want. Does that sound familiar? To some degree. Uh, good. I mean, not good, but I'm glad you said it because it makes me feel better. Because I've noticed in my life that there's a way in which, although I may think I can do everything I want to do, it's not always true. I don't, I, I may give my best efforts but it doesn't mean that it's going to turn out the way that I thought it would. Very rarely does. And there's, there have been times in my life when I, I thought that, for instance, when I was young, I thought my body was um, indestructible. It turned out that wasn't true. I, I broke my arm once. Um, and I mean, other things happened too, but that was a big surprise. And then... Uh, there are times in which I thought if I just, I had, uh, if I just focused on a particular kind of skill that I would just excel in it, but, uh, or, you know, like some kind of work or business, and it would just become huge. But that didn't necessarily happen in a lot of cases. So there we have some kinds of limitations. And one might think, uh, coming into spiritual life, I hear this quite frequently, that, oh, what is my qualification? I really, I'm not very good at it. Um, I'm un unqualified. And one of the ways that's very helpful and encouraging to make spiritual advancement is to what's called follow in the footsteps of previous great teachers who have laid out a course for us. And then by following that, to the best of our ability, we can feel very confident that I'm doing the right thing. And this is a principle in bhakti, that great teachers go out of their way to chalk out the course so we can see it later. There are great teachers like one I'm sure you've heard of many times, called, uh, named Rupa Goswami. And he wrote a book called Upadeshamrita, which translated means the, the nectar of advice. You get a lot of advice, don't you? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, every time, uh, you know, somebody gets a common cold, you get like 20 different people telling you, oh, I'll tell you what you need. You have to, <laughs> here's how to cure it. Everybody's a doctor. Uh, well, when you get into the rarefied company of 
those who are acclaimed and, uh, and it's agreed upon by many of the greatest minds and thinkers are, are the best in their field. And then you get their advice. It's very helpful. And so he gave such advice. And one of the aspects of his teachings are about six principles that help one to advance in devotional service. And one of them is about finding out of what path is chalked out for us by previous teachers and then following that to the best of our ability. And it's such an important way to make advancement in spiritual life that it was also written about 5,000 years ago in the book called Srimad Bhagavatam. How many of you have heard of that book? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay, great. <laughs> Thankfully, it's becoming popular, of course, in here, I'm sure it's very popular. Uh, the Srimad Bhagavatam is uh, known as an incarnation of God, of Krishna. It's, uh, God can appear in any form, and this is a literary incarnation of God, if you can imagine such a thing. We see it a lot, because when we take that book around, which we do frequently to offer to people in their homes, sometimes will go in there and will install it in their homes. You know, they're just sitting there minding their own business and we knock on their door and then they come out and they say, what are you all doing here? It's like, oh, we, we want to show you this book. And big mistake if they invite us in. But in one case, I remember the they, people were very impressed with the book because we told them that it was encyclopedic and that it had, and we showed them the pictures and how it teaches about the, the A to Z in spiritual life. And they're very interested, I could tell. In fact, they said they were, but they said, we don't have any space for it. Can you, would that uh, fit in your context that you'd be sitting there and then, it's a big book, right? It's like 18 volumes. You might think, where are we gonna put it? So we looked around a little bit for them and we, I found a shelf. And I said, there was a game, an old game on it. You know, people keep games. And they, I, I said, do you need this? Do you play this game? And, and the woman in the house said, no, no, we don't really care. It's like, well, you could move that. And so they moved it. And then there was still not enough room. And I said, uh, what about all these other things here? There were hairbrushes and there were uh, other kinds of books. And as we went down the line, looking at each one of them and actually analyzing, I asked her the question, what about this? And I said, no, no, no. And then finally, the whole shelf was cleared. And we cleaned it because it's a respectable book. Some places, when they bring the book in, everyone stands up and they put it on a golden throne because it's so important. So not everybody knows that. But we cleaned the shelf and then we put it on their shelf. And there's a big difference between having an old broken game and a hairbrush and a bunch of other books you haven't read or don't want to read and having the Srimad Bhagavatam sitting there. Don't you agree? Yes. Yeah. So uh, the Srimad Bhagavatam goes in. And one of the reasons that people, I'm going to get back to the point uh, in a minute. One of the reasons that people don't uh, want to uh, put the Srimad Bhagavatam in their home is because it's a sociological fact that what we keep in our homes is a way we express who we are to other people. So if you just happen to put an 18 volume, very 
brilliantly colored set of books in your house and then your neighbors walk in and say, hey, by the way, uh, what is that? You have to go like, eh, I'm a Hare Krishna. <laughs> because who else is going to keep a book like that in their house? What happened to the broken game and all the, you know, stupid books you had? It's like, oh, I'm Hare Krishna. So when Krishna moves in, you have to move a bunch of other things out. That's another point. But in the Srimad Bhagavatam, there's a verse that talks about how it's poetical. And, it, and the verse says that the great teachers of bhakti, they're self-effulgent. They're, they're so great that everyone says, these, they, they all stand up when they come in. Like the teacher of the Srimad Bhagavatam itself was a young man. He was 16. When he entered this incredible scene where the king, the emperor, had left his position because he was cursed to die in seven days. And he went and sat down on the bank of the river, the Ganges. And then people heard about it and they came from all directions to see what was going to happen and also to offer advice. But then uh, amidst all these various advice givers came a young man and many of the others were venerable. They were older people. And this younger person, 16-year-old, who wasn't interested in fashion, by the way, because he didn't wear any clothes. And he came there and he was so self-effulgent that everybody stood up to offer him respect, even the, the eldest among them who were known as the greatest teachers of all time, they stood up and offered the seat of esteem to this younger teacher named Shukadev, who sat down. And then uh, the question came from uh, the king, what do I do now at the time of death? What is the duty of somebody who's about to die? That's what the whole book's about. So it's relevant to all of us, right? Say yes. yes. Yeah, you have to be enthusiastic about that one. It's like, nah, I'll put it off. No, <laughs> no that's not what spiritual life's about. Uh, so uh, in the conversation, uh, Shukadeva Goswami brings up this point about how to be successful in spiritual life. And he makes it really easy. So he says that when great personalities take to the process of devotional service, as we're practicing here, they set a course for us. They chart it out and they leave it behind when they leave the world so that we can follow it. And it's compared in this verse poetically to a boat. And the boat is equipped to cross over the ocean of trouble. This material world is called an ocean of trouble. And now, here comes, it, it gets better, because the boat is so effective that if you just try to get in the boat, that is, you're sincere, I want to follow this. I'm going to follow it to the best of my ability, no matter what position I'm starting from, if you have that attitude. Then what happens is the ocean shrinks. That's how powerful the intention is to follow in the footsteps of the previous teacher, that the ocean itself, which is impassable and infinite to those who are not interested in spiritual life, we stay swimming in that ocean life after life. But if you decide, I'm going to try to follow the path given by the previous teachers, 
then uh, that intention uh, causes the ocean to shrink. Now, how small do you think it's going to go? Anybody? You might win something here on this one. If you can tell uh, what the size of the ocean shrinks down to when your intention is so strong that you want to follow the previous teachers. I'll give you a hint. For those who already know, don't say it. <laughs> um, it's an animal. It's, the, it's an animal's uh, print that's left on the ground. So, A, cheetah. <laughs> B, elephant. This is the size of the ocean, you know, when it shrinks down. Or C, a calf. Okay, let's vote. A, cheetah. B, elephant. C, calf. Yay! <laughs> That's really small, and it's kind of, I don't know, cute, too. You know, a little calf. You ever see little calf's hooves? You just, you know, your heart's going to start palpitating when you see that. It's a little calf. It leaves a little mark in the earth, and a little rainwater gets in there. It's like, I thought, so how hard is spiritual life? Would I try to follow the previous teachers, just what they've laid out to the best of my ability, whatever I can do right now, that's my intention. Then the ocean of trouble shrinks down to the size of the water contained with the hoof print of a calf. And then the implication is, with the power of your intention to follow the previous teachers, you can step right over it. So that's one of the great principles of bhakti, is to find out what it is that's most recommended by these previous teachers, and then try to follow that. And if you do the best you can, which is reasonable, isn't it? Because how can you do better than that? Do the best you can with what you have right now, and you'll be successful. You'll move forward on the process of bhakti. How does that sit with you? You like it? Okay, what do you like about it? What appeals to you about the poetry of it or just the idea? Does it sound... I'm not going to put words in your mouth. I'm going to wait and see what you have to say. What do you think? Let's reflect just for a minute on the concepts. Yeah. I like that. It's universal. It doesn't matter where you're at. And when you say it doesn't matter where you're at, do you mean it doesn't matter where you're at personally, like in your life, that you can start from any level, right? That's what you're saying? Yes. That's really important because if there's uh, an entry fee that I can't afford, then what am I going to do? How can I start spiritual life, right? But if you can start from wherever you're at now and make progress from it, and it's universal, it works everywhere, at all times, for all people, that's pretty good, right? I like it. That's really good. Okay, let's have a couple more. We've got a cascade of, of good ideas going here. Yes? An impossible challenge has been scaled down to something that sounds possible. Nice. I like that. Uh, how did you think of that? I like the, the terminology, too, scaled down. Yeah. I, I thought that was the most appropriate verb. If I was going to say 
Yeah. But the scaling, because the ocean is so hard to conceive of, but in the capsule, because it's very possible to conceive of. Nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it does. When you compare the two, the ocean and the calf's hoof print together, it does, uh, of course, scale down, definitely. And when you said scale down, it made me think, well, somebody scaled it down for us. That's a, it sounds benevolent, doesn't it? Like somebody did us a big favor. And uh, it has to do with our own sincerity, which is a, a reasonable entry fee into spiritual life to have sincerity, isn't it? Thank you. Nice. A couple more. Yeah. Um, right now, my platform is just doing the Jesus in that way. Um, and also, it seems like it's quite sweet knowing that there's been support and there is support and we're getting the help that's on that side. Definitely. Uh, and I'll tell you a secret about um, something that's helped me when I'm chanting. How many of you here have uh, practiced this? a uh, system called japa. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, <laughs> Okay, so you know what japa means, right? So when you do japa, you're using your jaw, and you're also holding on to beads, and you're using your paw. So it's japa. <laughs> and actually, it's a, it's a beautiful, silent, uh, sort of just above what you can, uh, other people can hear, prayer, and it actually destroys any bad karma. Pa means sin, and ja means having to take another birth in the, in the world, japa. Gets destroyed by japa. So uh, it's one of the main practices recommended by the great teachers, is to take time every day. How many, day, how many hours do you get here in, um, where are we? Long Beach, how many, how many hours do you get in your normal day, approximately? 24. 24? Okay, it's the same as in San Francisco. <laughs> I, I checked it in Tokyo, it's the same also. So everybody gets 24 hours. So what the great teachers recommend is apportion your day so that you take some time for your own investment in your spiritual life. Because if you do that, then everything will mold around that. This is the idea behind japa, the, the chanting, the daily chanting. So if you say, this is the most important practice I'm gonna to do today, everything else can be accommodated around it. You know how decorators work? Any decorators in here? Too bad, because I need one. Um, <laughs> but actually, a decorator once told me, it was a really good decorator too, and he told me the way decorators work is find one piece of art or something, uh, an implement that you keep in your home that you like, and that the style of it, just, it can be a vase, just one vase. And you'd say, okay, I like the style of this vase. I like the coloring of this vase. I like the way it is. And then the decorator will take the vase and say, yeah, I know the feeling you're looking for. It's kind of a shabby chic look, right? Yeah, yeah. So then, you know, the decorator will then decorate around the one vase and the rest of the environment will all emulate the, the look and style and feel of the vase, right? So with japa, if you make that your starting point in your day, you carve out of 24 hours and you say, this is going to be my vase. 
This is, I'm going to uh, take Japa as the center point of my day. And then from there, everything else works around that. Then you can have really powerful Japa. But the point I was going to make was the, the mood in chanting Japa and going from your point that you made. It, and that is that we get a lot of help from the previous teachers. So one way that I've really um, been able to help myself in focusing when I chant my japa is to think about the previous teachers who have also chanted japa. In fact, there's a famous verse written by Rupa Goswami in which he says, that the great teachers all chant japa. They like to chant the, the mantra. And so they say, he says, the great liberated souls, those who are already liberated, they do this. And so when I'm chanting, I often think about the previous teachers and pray to them. And there are pictures, as we have, of previous acharyas and teachers. And you can think about them and offer a prayer that please help me. It's in the vein of what you talked about, how we can follow in the footsteps of the great teachers, actually feel that we're following them, remember that we're following them, and remember that they did the same activity, and we, you can get spiritual strength from doing that. Does that sound reasonable? Yes. Okay. We'll take a couple more reflections. Yes. Nice. How did you think of that? You're very enthusiastic about the answer, so you must be, that's something you must have been working with and that you have realization about. Can you say more about it? Yeah, as a believer, I've been trying to, instead of being like my mind, hmm. overcome the struggles I have to use my heart and the power that comes with it. Yes, he said instead of using his mind, to try to overcome struggles, he's using his heart more. It's interesting because I heard recently um, somebody, uh, a PhD researcher, sent me a paper that he had written about how uh, we have more nerve endings in our heart region than we do in our brain. And there's a way in which when we um, experience something, we first experience it with our heart and then it's relayed to the brain afterwards. So we have this term in uh, the modern world, uh, mindfulness. But what about heartfulness? There's, a, there's a more of a sense of that, as you're expressing in bhakti, the feeling it in your heart. Of course, we do have ways that we, uh, it's not that just, it's all about the feeling. We also verify you know, the kinds of things that we're feeling through the teachings of the previous um, great uh, practitioners of bhakti, who, as I said, lay out a track for us so we can triangulate and say, yes, what I'm feeling in my heart is already vetted and it's something that I can follow. It's so important to give one's heart also. In fact, the word shraddha is a word often translated as faith. Uh, shrad really means the heart, and da is an active verb. It means where you place something. So basically, what am I putting my heart into? And when we're able to have 
uh, we're convinced in our mind that this is the right path, and we also have association with those where we feel, these are my ideal people. These are the kind of people that I, I want to emulate in my life. And you get these two things going. In fact, there's a verse mentioned in the Srimad Bhagavatam that recommends that we fortify ourselves in these ways. Which means that a person who wants to be steady in bhakti should have the fortification of hearing from books like Srimad Bhagavatam and then also having really powerful association that one feels from one's heart. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, one more, if you would. Reflection. Yes. Um, I was thinking about how there's, you said at the beginning of class how um, you can put a lot of energy and effort into something and it doesn't always like return or it doesn't always go the way you expect it to. And so um, this makes me think of like this is the only example of something where if I'm sincere and I put energy and, and effort into Yes. Has anybody ever offered you an investment that you can't lose? I th I'm assuming so from the... <laughs> it was a wave that went across the room. It's a, yeah, run when somebody says that. So many people lose money. That there's so the, the material investment is, is a risk. The risk is that I'll give my all my energy to developing everything in my life. What are some things in life that you could develop? Let's just name four. Strength, Strength yeah. You could really put a lot into getting str strong. Intelligence, Intelligence yeah. Money. Money, that's a big one, right? And then, uh, what else? One more. Huh? Art? Skills, skills and hobbies, yeah. So you get all that. And then, uh, so there's a way in which I might excel in many different ways, and then I could, uh, I could lose it all. It's a big risk. So there's a, in, as you're saying, in the spiritual practice, there's no risk. There's no, only gain. And when we give ourselves to the spiritual practice, this is verified in the Bhagavad Gita, by the way. Krishna says to Arjuna, who has this worry, that what if I invest in this and, you know, I quit halfway through. Somehow or other, I just don't make it. And Krishna says, don't worry, you get forward progress. Wherever you ended up, you're going to start off there in your next life. I'll make arrangements. Or he didn't say I'll make arrangements, said there will be an arrangement made so that you'll start off where you left off. You never lose. And knowing that, knowing where we get the best return on our investment of our life is a motivating factor that's very important. And hearing about it from the Bhagavad Gita and elsewhere until we're, we feel sure that, yeah, this is the best investment that I could possibly make with my energy wherever I'm putting my attention and so forth, uh, this is uh, one of the ways in which we become determined 
because we're very sure that I'm doing the right thing. When I'm not sure, and I'm thinking maybe I'm missing something, they call it um, FOMO. You know about FOMO? I'm just learning these things now. So <laughs> I guess everyone knows it, but me and the whole world. FOMO, I gotta catch up on stuff. You guys gotta help me out here. So <laughs> if I have a FOMO about the, <laughs> about, the, about the world, I'm gonna miss out on something. Uh, these great teachers just saying, uh, actually there's a sign. I, so there's one of my favorite places in India, we're on pilgrimage and we're going around and there's a sign in front of a little building that uh, looks like a kind of inviting little place along the, along the parkrun mark. And it says, in very uh, nicely printed letters, it says, there's nothing to see inside here. Uh, uh, you can keep going, basically. And there should be a whole sign on the whole material world, basically, saying, nothing to see here. You just keep moving. Don't worry. You're not going to miss anything if you take the spiritual life. And that's... If, if, if I actually have that sense that I get everything that I'm looking for and much more than I can imagine by investing in my, in my japa, as an example, as a centerpiece of my day, this is what's called strong faith. Shraddha shab... Can I chant some Bengali? Shraddha shab... Not very perfectly, but... Shraddha shabdi vishras kahe suridhanishchoy Krishne bhakti koila sarva karma kritahoy you know what that means? The thing I just said before that. It means that if uh, strong faith means that you're convinced that the more I invest in my devotional practice, japa is an example, make it the centerpiece of the day, then the more everything else that I'm hoping to do or what it needs to be done, I'll be able to do it. It'll get done automatically, practically, by this process of giving my investment to japa or any other devotional practice. I just happen to be fixated on japa right now as a really important aspect of devotional service. What do you think? Are you buying all this? Yes. Okay. All right, so now uh, just a little more. This is the harder part. Are you with me for a harder part? Yes. Okay, we'll take a couple questions. Questions are very difficult. Oh, you got them already. What a crowd. Okay, go ahead. Okay, she has a question about the hoof print. I'm just repeating for the audience at home. No, no, I'll repeat it. It's going right into the mic and into the feed, so it's good. If it's such a great investment, as you're saying, how come the material world can't just be vanquish, vanish? How come it doesn't vanish? Why is it smaller and not it's smaller and it's not there at all? You wanted to go away altogether, eh? <laughs> a little hoof print, that's a little too much to ask. <laughs> no, it, you have a very good point. It, it's, and, and one might take to hear these things and take to devotional service, and then you, know, you go home, and it's like, oh, you know, something happened, the door broke, and you know, somebody's asking for their money back, <laughs> whatever it might be. Um, in the material world, anything can happen, and it will, as long as we're in the world. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, you can expect some trouble. Things go sideways here for everybody. It's uh, an equal, equal opportunity disturber, the material world. Yes? 
I'd like a clarification on the question. Okay. Is Rumi asking why does the verse not say it goes away completely? Or is Rumi asking why does it not go away completely? Independent of the verse, she's reflecting on her own life. Hmm. What say you? So she was asking the first one. I think you were answering the second one. Okay, the first one is why? Why would the verse not just say it disappears completely? Why would the verse say it becomes the size of the water in a capsule? Why wouldn't the verse say it evaporates completely? Hmm. Good point. Well, um, a uh, the the water within a hoofprint of a calf uh, might evaporate quite readily on a hot day. <laughs> Whereas the ocean is never going to go away. <laughs> we give a little effort, too. It's not that... Uh, I mean, the devotee actually feels uh, quite uh, exhilarated. Uh, by taking help from Krishna and the previous Acharyas. And, of course, you know, while we're in this world, and this is explained in, in another part of the Bhagavatam, it's a later part, uh, in the 14th chapter of the 10th canto, where Krishna talks about, uh, where Brahma talks about uh, how we're helped by the various ways in which we have to struggle in the material world. In fact, frustration is good. Say frustration is good. Frustration is good. <laughs> if anybody walks in right now for the first time, it's like, what kind of seminar are you running in there? <laughs> Actually, trouble is, the, the troubles we go through in this world are purifying the world as a, uh, as a um, laboratory for, it's like cosmic sensitivity training, a colleague of mine once said. And there's... Uh, there's a way in which, even after we come to this full sense of I'm giving myself to devotional service and the ocean shrinks down, uh, our previous teachers have said that there may be some last vestiges of the impetus to try to enjoy the material world. Possible? Yes. Okay, three people felt that way. <laughs> I would like to add my voice. Yes, uh, there could be some last vestiges now, how will those be removed? Here's a very interesting point, and that is that uh, Krishna is so expert because he knows what's going on everywhere, and especially in my heart. And so if I have any last vestige of desire to enjoy the material world, it means I may have to come back to experience it in the world. That's how karma works, right? So he's very expert at customizing the kinds of tribulations I get while I'm in a state of going back to Godhead and I still have some last vestiges, how do you clean them up? I mean, when you're moving, don't you hate that? You're moving somewhere and you moved all the big stuff and then you got a few little odds and ends left over and you go, what am I going to do with these? Have you ever had that? Do you hate it as much as me? It's one of the worst things in the world for me. You know, I just did it recently. I cleaned out the go-down. You know what that is? Yes. It's a garage. <laughs> My go-down. So cleaning out everything, working really hard two days, moving all the big things, clean, giving away all kinds of stuff. And then there's some odds and ends, like, what am I going to do with these? So that's what happens in our practice of devotional service. 
we come to this point, yes, I'm moving to the spiritual world. I'm out of here. You move all the big stuff. And then all of a sudden you look around and there's all these odds and ends. And it's like, what am I going to do with that? It's really hard. And so Krishna helps in that point. So there's still a little bit for us to do at the end, to step over a little impetus for us to finish the last part. Is that right? Hare Krishna. Okay. Yes, Prabhu. Heart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's an energy center that's in around the region of the heart. And in that energy center, the soul resides. And so does the super spirit, Krishna, who stays there as our companion. And it's about in the region of the solar plexus. The chakra energy center you can look at it on a chart. It's there. So I don't know about the approximation of places exactly. I'd have to think about that. It's an interesting question. But I will say something about companionship. May I? Yes. Since you brought up the heart and, you know, heartfulness we talked about, and there's a way in which uh, the, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, I'm there with you in your heart. And uh, we understand God's in the heart. If you tell somebody on the street, you know, God's in your heart, most people go, yeah, I believe that. God's in my heart. They don't have to think about it very long unless they've already fortified themselves against any idea that, you know, entertaining idea of it, a supreme being. And so the word companion, I heard my spiritual master once said, uh, Christians are companion within the heart. Has anybody else heard that? The word companion yes. in the heart. Do you know where the word comes from? No. It comes from Latin and it has to do with panis, which means bread, and come, which means to share. So companion means somebody you break bread with, like a really good friend. You know, breaking bread means you're close. And so there's this sense that we have a companion in our heart. Isn't that nice? We have a companion in our heart. It's the one we love the most, the one who loves us the most, the one we can actually hang out with and break bread and be with. You know, it's our heart's desire. And he's so close to us right now. So that feeling we get in our heart, whatever area we feel it in, is real. It's real. And when we, go, when we take to the, uh, the chanting, the japa, it's a prayer where we can repeat over and over again, calling out and just remember that our friend is there and we can feel his presence by the chanting process. And when we feel it more and more and we start 
and sensing that we're getting direction from within and it's confirmed from without by hearing from the Bhagavad Gita and from advanced practitioners, then we'll make steady progress in the path of devotional service. Thank you, everybody. Uh, should we have a, a short kirtan now? Okay. Thank you. Thank you.